You are listening to a message from City Church of Richmond, located in Richmond, Virginia. We are a broken people, loved by God, continually restored by Christ, and sent out to worship God, serve our city, and work for its renewal. To learn more about City Church and to find out how to get connected to our community, visit our website at citychurchrva.com. That's C-I-T-Y-C-H-U-R-C-H-R-V-A.com. And thanks for listening. My name is Harrison Ford. Like I said earlier, I'm one of the pastors here. And as always, it's a, it's a pleasure to be here with you to worship God together. You know, back in 2020, I know we don't want to think about back to 2020, but let me take you back there for a moment. Uh, back in 2020, when the pandemic first started, you remember everyone was doing everything over Zoom. Zoom happy hours. Zoom. Uh, we did Zoom trivia here at church, if y'all remember that. Um, you know, what's funny was that of all the feelings I could have about Zoom, I had a strange sense of nostalgia. The reason being is when Brittany and I first started dating back in 2011, we dated long distance. And by long distance, I mean really long distance. We were, uh, she was in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. I was in Brasov, Romania. A seven-hour time difference. And so we spent a lot of time, not on Zoom, but on Skype. Any of y'all remember that? I was still trying to use Skype through like part of the pandemic, and I don't even know if it's around anymore. Um, we actually started dating when I was back from Romania on furlough for a month doing some fundraising. And I remember right before I was about to fly back to Romania, you know, we had the infamous DTR conversation. And I remember I was trying to set what I thought were like realistic expectations for us. And I remember saying, look, I know that we're both busy. I know the seven, ti- seven hour time difference isn't very convenient. So if we just get to talk every once in a while, that's totally fine. I think you know how that goes. We talked every day for hours over Skype. We would re- wake up ridiculously early or stay up ridiculously late just to see and to hear one another. But there came a point where we realized that Skype wasn't enough. We actually needed to be close to one another. And, you know, I thought in my head, would she move to Eastern Europe to date me? (laughs) I realized I'm not that much of a catch. And so I decided my better plan was to move back to the States. I moved to Chapel Hill. The rest is history. Here we are now. And of course, I think that all of us in here probably have some version of that uh, story in our own life. Maybe it's not with a significant other, maybe it's with a friend or a family member where you've moved or you made a concerted effort to be nearer to them. And that's because we want to be close to the people we love. It's a basic human instinct. It's self-evident. And I want to actually propose to you today that this is rooted in our Creator. You see, because what we see all throughout Scripture is that God moves close to the people that He loves. And of course, this culminates in the incarnation with Jesus. As Eugene Peterson put it, God moving in next door. The problem, though, is that even though we know that that is true, it's hard for us to really feel 
that nearness at times, if we're being completely honest. Oftentimes, God seems distant. He feels more like an idea than a person. Or at worst, God sometimes feels absent from our lives or completely non-existent. And I think if that, if that describes where you are today, our text holds good news. Because what we're going to find is that even in those moments where God may feel distant, he's close and he's near. As we continue through this story of Moses and uh, the story of Moses and the Exodus, what we're going to find is that God gets up close and personal with us. So if you would, please turn your Bibles to Exodus 3. We're going to look at verses 1 through 12. Exodus 3, 1 through 12. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why this bush isn't burning. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see God, he called out to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. And he said, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Havites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I'll send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out to Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I've sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be found pleasing and acceptable to you today, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Now, before we launch in, I want to make a quick caveat, and it's this. Um, look, the text that we just read is one of the fundamental passages of Scripture. It's referenced back to all throughout the Old Testament and even well into the New Testament. And originally, when I wrote this sermon, I was trying to cover everything, and it just ended up being, at bare minimum, a 45-minute sermon. Um, so we're going to go with it. Uh, now, we've got food waiting for us upstairs for formation. Um, so I, no one wanted me to preach super, super long, and so 
What I'm going to do is I'm going to cover really the first six verses. Uh, the, the second half of the passage contains themes that are going to arise up as we continue the rest of the series. So, to, to look at this first half of the passage, what I want to do is I want us to discuss two things. When God comes close and how God comes close. When he comes close and how he comes close. First, let's talk about when. So, you know, since 2011, when Brittany and I started dating long distance, technology has only gotten better at connecting us, or at least giving us the semblance of connection. You can uh, get in touch with anyone, anywhere, at any time. And whether we realize this or not, I think that this has subtly shaped the way that we think about our connection with God. We assume that it should operate in the same way. It should operate on our timeline. It should be on demand, just like it is with everyone else. And in one sense, this is true, right? Because if you're, if you're here and you're a believer in Christ, you're united to Jesus. So you have permanent, always-on access to God the Father through Christ and, uh, and the Holy Spirit. And yet, on the other hand, what we see in Scripture and what I think we experience in our lives is that God progressively reveals himself to us, and that goes on his timetable, not ours. You know, if you grew up in the church, I think you probably experienced this. You know, since you were a, a child their age, day in, day out, week in, week out, you probably uh, heard the gospel from your parents, from your pastors, from your youth leaders, your young life leaders. And yet, despite that, maybe it wasn't until college or until even after college that all of that started to sink in, that you started to, to really believe in it and you started to have an experience of a personal relationship with Christ. And we actually see this happening in Exodus. If we zoom back the lens and we look and we consider the, the, the three chapters that we've read thus far, we see this th same dynamic going on. God revealing himself according to his timeline. In Exodus 1, God's name isn't mentioned at all. If you're just reading the text and you have no kind of understanding of what is going on, it would seem like he's completely absent. And then you get to the first part of Exodus 2. And we see kind of the invisible hand of God's providence at work in Moses' life. But God isn't really mentioned. And then we get to the end of Exodus 2, the passage that Eric preached on last, last week. And we get this really incredible statement. God sees and knows what his people are going through in Egypt. And he has compassion upon them. And yet, even as, as incredible as that is... He, it's written in such a way that God still appears at a distance. And it's not until today's text, Exodus 3, in which God reveals himself in a personal way to his people via Moses. And, you know, I, maybe these three chapters describe where you are today with God. Maybe you feel like you're in Exodus 1. You feel like God is absent at best or just non-existent at worst. Maybe you're in the first part of Exodus 2. You can see like things are happening in your life that you, are, are evidence of God, but you just still don't feel, you don't feel like he's there. 
Or maybe you're in the latter part of Exodus 2. Maybe you look and say, I trust that God sees and knows me and that he hears me and has compassion on me, but he still feels at a distance. And if that describes where you are, let me just say, I've been at all of those places too, and it it can be so frustrating and sad and isolating. But what I want you to see in today's text is that um, that is not abnormal to feel those things. It doesn't mean that you're not a Christian if you feel that way. It doesn't mean that God has forsaken you or that he's not there. It doesn't mean that God doesn't hear you. You see, throughout Scripture, we see the people of God wrestling with what feels like the absence of God. The prophet Isaiah, he says, truly, you're a God who hides himself. The psalmist in Psalm 77, he's in the midst of this great trouble, and he says, Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? And perhaps the most arresting instance of this comes from Jesus himself upon the cross when he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Of course, we know that in that moment, he, he's no less divine. God, in that moment of feeling forsaken, still is the second person of the Trinity. He still has full and perfect access to the blazing heart of the Father. And yet, because he's bearing upon himself the weight of all of our sin, past, present, and future, he feels forsaken. And though it may seem counterintuitive, I want to suggest that we can find hope in this. Because you see, as a believer, you have been united to Christ. You, through Jesus, have perfect access to the love of the Father that is permanent. It can never be taken away from you. And yet, despite that, our experience this side of glory because of the ongoing effects of sins, is going to be this feeling of forsakenness at times. Like Jesus, we will at times feel God's distance or absence, though he is near and close to us. So the question then is, why would God allow this to happen? We've felt this way. It's terrible. Why would God allow this? Well, I think this is where, again, the life of Moses is instructive. You see, when God personally reveals himself to Moses here in the burning bush in Exodus 3, Moses is 80 years old. You know, if you've seen uh, Disney's The Prince of Egypt, like, he doesn't look, they don't portray him as 80 in the burning bush scene. But he's 80 years old. He spent 40 years as a prince of Egypt and then 40 years as an exiled shepherd in the wilderness. And it's been clear, if you've been here as we've studied through this, it's been clear as we looked at Exodus 1 and 2 that God is sovereignly coordinating these circumstances in his life. He, uh, Moses' position in Pharaoh's court would allow him access to, Mo, to, to Pharaoh, and that will come into great, um, great effect 
as the Exodus story continues. And then we're going to find that also this 40 years of, of seemingly just sojourning in the wilderness as a shepherd, it's preparing him as well. What's it preparing him for? When he's going to shepherd the Hebrew people in 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. So what we learn here is that God wastes nothing in Moses' life, nor does he waste anything in ours, though it might feel like it is. What we learn here is that God's timetable is governed by his perfect will, which, as we see throughout Exodus and Scripture, is directed by his perfect love. Let me say that again. This is kind of my thesis statement. God's timetable is governed by his perfect will, which is directed by his perfect love. And friends, this is good news, because in those seasons where God feels near or distant, we can can rely on, on this truth. We can trust this. But what it's going to require of us in those seasons is it's going to require an exercise of faith. And this is actually what you see the psalmist doing in Psalm 77. You know, he's expressed these doubts uh, about where, where is God? I can't seem to access him. Has his love been um, turned away from me? But then the psalmist talks back to the doubts. And he says this, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I'll remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I'll remember your wonders of old. I'll ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. The psalmist is talking back by returning to the things that he knows to be more true than his subjective feelings. The the way that God has acted, not only in history, but in the psalmist's own life. I love this phrase, I'll appeal to the years of the right hand of the Most High. The right hand is where Christ himself Self sits, and the psalmist is saying here, I have experienced this kind of access and presence. It doesn't feel like it now, but I've had it before. And he's bringing that back up. He's bringing his doubts in, into the light of that reality. In other words, what he's doing is he's teaching us to remember in the darkness what we've known to be true in the light. To remember in the darkness what we've known to be true in the light. So the question then is how do we trust in God's nearness in those seasons where God feels so distant? Well, I think that um, an answer to this comes as we consider how God comes close to Moses. So it says in verse 2 this, that the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. But it's clear as we read the, the passage that this is just, this is no ordinary angel. And in fact, I want to submit to you, this is Jesus. This is a, a, a theophany, an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. How do we know this? Well, first, the ground here is, uh, is the ground around the bush is so holy that Moses is commanded to take his shoes off out of respect um, for the out of reverence, and whenever we see um, whenever we see angels elsewhere in the Bible, no one is commanded to take off their shoes. 
Now, to be sure, angels have their own kind of glory. This is why wherever they show up, people are afraid. You know, the first thing they say is, don't kill, don't kill me. It's funny that we have, like, you know, angels that these kind of, like, uh, precious memories, cherubs sitting on, uh, you know, sitting on the clouds, when in the Bible, every, the first thing they see when they see them is, don't kill me. Um, so they have their own glory, and yet this is a categorically different glory. This is a divine glory that we see emanating from this bush. Second, the reason we know this is Jesus is because the voice that comes from this bush uses first-person pronouns. I am the God of your father, etc. The, the voice coming from the bush is identifying himself as God. And we see these same characteristics applied to the angel of the Lord, this figure, throughout the Old Testament. You see, the angel of the Lord is, throughout the Old Testament, um, a, a messenger of God. And he's a personal messenger of God. And what we find is that we can actually understand that who this is in light of the incarnation. Because when that happens, we learn in the prologue to John's gospel that Jesus is the Word. Jesus is, in his, uh, Jesus in his humanly existence, is continuing the Word that he did in his pre-incarnate existence. He is acting as the divine messenger of the Holy Trinity. He is the Word. Now here's why this is important. God comes to you in and through Jesus. God comes to you. He gets up close and personal to you in and through Jesus, just like he did with Moses. There's no other way. If you want closeness to God, you've got to have closeness to Christ. This is why Jesus says in John 14, no one comes to the Father except through me. And that might seem like Christianity 101, and it kind of is. But here's why I think it's important. First, this leaves no room whatsoever for vague spirituality or any kind of room for religion that doesn't recognize it as Christ as the way to God, as Christ as the Son of God. This is, a, this is a highly exclusive claim that's being set out here. Jesus is the way to God. You can't come to him through nature. You can't come to him through a vague connection to the higher power. You can't come to God through Buddha. You can't come to God through Allah. You have to come through Christ, period. Second, this is important because if you're a Christian in here today, you need to understand that you are, despite your feelings, objectively close to God. You are objectively close to God. No matter, your, no matter how your experience of closeness is in the morning, it is in the, at the present, you are objectively near to God. But why? Because you're united to Christ you share in his access to the Father, and you're indwelt with his Holy Spirit. And again, this goes back to remembering in the dark what you've known to be true in the light. You see, one of our fatal flaws as humans is that what we do is we, we take whatever we're feeling and we think that that defines reality. But there are many times in which the opposite is true. Our feelings are out of accord with reality. 
And it, it's not just when we're anxious or depressed or, or, or struggling with some kind of uh, mental illness. It can be so pedestrian. Who in here has ever been hangry before? I, I mean, I uh, ate a very light breakfast today. I did not eat lunch. And there was a moment earlier where I was like, this is the worst day ever. <laughs> and then I had a bite of a granola bar. And I was like, oh, this is great. I'm going to baptize children. It's awesome. And now I'm not saying that emotions are bad. I'm actually saying quite the opposite. They're, they're very good. Emotions, please hear this. Emotions are a gift from God, especially when utilized correctly. You see, emotions are great thermometers. They're very good at telling us when things are going well or and when things are out of order. Um, but they're not great thermostats. They're not good at setting the standard for where things should be. They're not good at regulating our spiritual and emotional temperature. And so, with regards to closeness to God, we need to rely upon Scripture, how God has revealed himself uh, definitively in his word, to be the thermostat. That sets what's true. And then, we need to pay close attention to our emotions, though, because they tell us when we're veering from that standard, from that line. They tell us when our hearts are dull and cold. Or they'll, they'll tell us when our hearts are anxious and running hot. And then when that happens, we can adjust our practices and our habits accordingly. And the good thing here is that God has given us tools to do that. He's given us what we call the ordinary means of grace. Word, prayer, and the sacraments. And I actually want to hone in on the sacraments because I think we see a picture of them in today's text. You see, we talked about it earlier, but one of the most iconic moments of this passage is the burning bush. And again, if you've watched The Prince of Egypt, that scene's probably running through your head. Hot topic, or hot take, uh, not hot topic, the store. Uh, hot take, I think Prince of Egypt is one of Disney's best films from the 90s. I don't, I don't know if it's good to give a hot take the week before I'm going to be voted on to be associate pastor, but here we are. The burning bush, one of the most iconic moments of this passage. And I want us to take, take a moment to consider what is going on here. Jesus, the angel of the Lord, is communicating the presence of God to Moses through a common, ordinary object. Put another way, through the glory of his spiritual presence, Christ is transfiguring an ordinary piece of creation in such a way that it communicates to Moses the personal presence of God. Where else do we see this? Well, we witnessed it just a few moments ago, and we're about to witness it again here in a few minutes. I promise a few minutes. It's in the sacraments. Because in the sacraments, God takes ordinary physical creational elements like water and bread and wine and juice, and he inhabits them with his spiritual, pres spiritual presence, transfiguring them to be a conduit to us of God's presence with us, reinforcing, making them seals or signs and seals to us that God is with us, up close and personal, as real as the bread that we're about to eat and the wine or juice that we're about to drink. Now this may seem like a bit of abstract theology, and I guess and maybe in some ways it is. 
But I actually think that it's very practical and it's very liberating. And here's what I mean. There is a whole industry of Christian uh, pastors and authors and influencers who try to sell year in and year out some new and novel and better way to get close to God. And I have known so many people in my own life who chase each and every one of these fads year in and year out while neglecting the ordinary means that God has given us. And what I've seen with them is that, you know, at, at best they just kind of walk away from the church, but at worst they walk away from their faith. Because they, say, they look and they say, I've tried, I've tried all these things, but I don't feel close to God. But again, they've neglected to find God where he said he could be found. Word, prayer, sacraments. And this is why I think the, common, the ordinary means of grace are liberating. We don't have to try anything radical or novel to get close to God. We just need to diligently attend to the means, the ways that he's told us to get close to him. I want you to think uh, about Moses in this passage. What is it that brought him to the bush? What is it that brought him into God's presence? Forty years of just shepherding. Forty years of just doing the thing that God had set in front of him to do. It wasn't a, he, he didn't go off on this like special uh, you know, kind of quest to find God. No, he was just doing day in and day out the thing that God had put in front of him to do. And in that, God comes and gives him one of the most amazing revelations of his personal presence that we find in the Old Testament. So what does this mean for us? Friends, it means this. Faithfully attend day in and day out, Sunday in and Sunday out, to the means of grace. And if you do that, God will get up close and personal with you. It may take 40 years. I hope it doesn't. (laughs) But I promise you that if you do this, God will bring you into his presence. Why? Because he's promised us to do it. This is why Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek, and you'll find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. In closing, you know, the benefit of my moving back to North Carolina wasn't that this was some, like, romantic act, like a show cause of my devotion to Brittany, That wasn't the benefit of it. The benefit of my moving back to be near her was just our day in and day out walking through life together. It was learning what each other is like when we've had a hard day at work. It is uh, laughing at each other's silly pet peeves. It was noticing the small pleasures in life that cause a, a slight smile to break across each other's face. That was the benefit walking day in, day out with each other through life. And I want to suggest that in a similar manner, closeness with God is cultivated the same way. Thinking in the long term, faithfully attending to the means of grace. And as we do this, I want to suggest that we'll see the light of God's new morning mercies 
drive away the dark nights of the soul. And if we can do this, we, like the psalmist, will learn to talk back to our doubts and to our fears. And when God does seem distant, we can say this, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that even in the moments where you feel distant, you are truly near to us in Christ. Father, would you help us to have the spiritual discipline of remembrance, of remembering uh, the sweet times of our relationship with you so that in the dark nights of the soul we can remember uh, the bright lights of your, of your new morning mercies. Father, we pray, I pray this for myself and I pray this for my friends here. Would you help us to seek you where you've told us you can be found in your means of grace? And Father, I pray that as we diligently attend to those, would you, like Moses, make us acutely aware of your personal presence with us? And then, Father, would that result in worship and praise and mission? We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.